Welcome to the second season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. This episode takes us back to the 1950s to McAllen, Texas, a town on the Mexican border with 30,000 residents. Irene Garza grew up in a Catholic family with her sister Josephine, her mother Josefa, and her father Nicholas, who ran a dry-cleaning shop. Irene was petite with a slender frame and only five foot four and a half inches tall. Her brown eyes were deep set and almond shaped, her nose perky and slightly turned up at the end. Her dark brown hair was shoulder length with soft waves, and she often wore short bangs swept up in the latest style. She grew into a beautiful young woman and was crowned homecoming queen and given the title Miss All-South Texas Sweetheart, and later won Miss South Texas in 1958. Irene stood out not just for her beauty, but her elegance, sunny disposition, and warm smile. Irene was the first in the Garza family to go to college and graduate school. She became a school teacher and taught second grade at Thigpen Elementary. She would often cash her paycheck and use some of the money to buy her student school supplies. Meanwhile, in nearby Edinburgh, beautiful dark-haired 20-year-old Maria Guerra was attending Pan American College. On March 23, 1960, she was on her way to the Sacred Heart Catholic Church. When she arrived at the newly built brick building, she noticed a man in a blue and white car. He was parked outside the church and appeared to be watching her. Maria proceeded inside. She was alone as she knelt at the communion rail to pray. Without warning, the man from the car came up behind her. He grabbed her and tried to put a rag over her mouth. She fought back and managed to bite him. He released his grip and ran. But before fleeing, she got a good look at him. Her attacker had dark hair and wore horn-rimmed glasses, and she thought that he was dressed like a priest. Maria reported the assault to police. Back at the Garza household, Irene told her younger cousin Linda and her brother that she had Easter baskets for them. The two were so excited and looking forward to them on Easter Sunday. Irene was a devout Catholic. Every Saturday she went to confession and on Sunday went to Mass, a Sacred Heart Church. On Saturday, April 16th, three weeks after Maria's assault, Irene dressed in a pleated flower skirt with a lavender blouse and beige high-heeled shoes. She grabbed her stylish black patent leather purse, boarded her father's car, 
and at 6.45, slip behind the wheel for the five-minute drive to church. When she arrived, she was met by Father John Fight. At five foot nine, he had a slim build. His dark hair was cut short and parted at the side. He wore wire glasses which gave credence to his black clerical collar with his white band visible in the front. Father Fight had been an ordained minister for only two years and had come to help out at the church for the busy Easter weekend. Rather than hear Irene's confession in the church, he led her to the rectory next door. A very unusual move, if not even inappropriate. It's not known exactly what happened, but authorities believe that after her confession, Father Fight attacked Irene. She tried to fight him off, scratching his hands. He managed to take her down to the basement, used a blunt object, and struck her with all his force on the top of her head. She blacked out. He restrained her and sexually assaulted her. Later that night, Irene regained consciousness. He took her to his residence five miles away. There, he bound and gagged her and kept her captive. When Irene wasn't home by midnight, her family thought she stayed for midnight mass. Irene would always call if she's going to be out late, so they waited for her phone call. But when she wasn't home by 2.30 a.m., they became very concerned and began searching for her. They alerted family and friends, and by morning, the car Irene had been driving was found a block and a half from the church. The next day was Easter Sunday, and hundreds would be arriving soon for Easter Mass. Father Fight panicked. What was he going to do with Irene? He placed her in the bathtub, then put a plastic bag over her head. As he walked towards the door, he heard her say, I can't breathe. She repeated, I can't breathe. Father Fight opened the door and walked out. The rain came down hard that afternoon. Over 70 officers joined the search for Irene on foot and in vehicles, horseback, and airplane. They scoured the five-block area around the church, searched the countryside, orchards, and underbrush. Back at the Sacred Heart Church, Father Joseph O'Brien had a feeling something wasn't right with Father Fight. He'd noticed the scratches on his hands and thought they looked like they might be from fingernails. So he and another priest searched the rectory looking for Irene. After Mass, Father Fight returned to his residence. There in the bathtub, Irene had died. Without anyone seeing a thing, he loaded her body into a car and drove to within a mile of her home. He stopped the car on the side of the road, got out, and removed her body. He unceremoniously dumped Irene into a watery canal. 
Police appealed to the public through the media. On Monday, the Brownsville Herald reported that her family feared she had met with foul play. None of the parishioners at Sacred Heart that night recalled seeing Irene. McCowan police interviewed Irene's ex-boyfriend, but he had a solid alibi. For two days, there was no news. On Monday evening, three days after Irene disappeared, one of her beige high-heeled shoes was found on the side of McCall Road. It had a distinct pig-through flower pattern cut out on the toe. The monitor reported that the next morning, further up the road, a schoolboy found her black patent purse with her driver's license inside. Both the shoe and the purse were dry, which led investigators to believe they had been left there after the torrential rain had stopped the night before. Two more days would pass with no sign of Irene. Then a man and a woman were walking along Highway 83, and across from the Sears department store, they spotted something in the canal. The man at first thought it was a sack, then realized it was the body of a woman. Irene was laying face down. Her shoes were missing. She had on her skirt and her blouse was unbuttoned. She had obvious bruises to her face and signs that she had been beaten. An autopsy determined that she had been hit on the head with a blunt object, but that her cause of death was suffocation. The water and mud in the canal had destroyed any forensic evidence. A couple weeks later, investigators drained the canal, hoping to find some evidence. And to their surprise, they found a green slide viewer, with its electrical cord still attached. An odd find indeed. Was it the tool the killer used to bind his victim? Or had it been in the car when he discarded her body and he inadvertently dropped it? Police released a photo of the green Eastman Coda slide viewer to the media and asked for help in locating its owner. Two days later, they received an interesting note. Father Fight wrote to tell them it was his, but he gave no explanation as to how it ended up in the canal. Investigators had already spoken to Father Fight, as he was the last person to see Irene that night. Investigators spoke with him again. Now he changed his story and admitted to hearing her confession at the rectory. Father O'Brien told police he noticed scratches on Father Fight's hands. But Father Fight explained them away saying that he'd broken his glasses that night and had to leave to go to his residence to retrieve a spare pair. But when he got there, he didn't have his keys, so he climbed up the outside to the second-floor window and scraped up his hands. Police wondered, could a man of the cloth be a murderer? Investigators questioned hundreds of people, but Father Fight never left their minds. 
unbeknown to investigators, Father Fight had confessed, but not to them, to Father O'Brien. In a confrontation, he admitted that he had killed Irene, but Father O'Brien did not tell police. Meanwhile, police were investigating Marie's assault and had her view of police lineup. Looking at the men one by one, she picked out Father Fight as the man who attacked her that night at Sacred Heart Church. Investigators brought Father Fight in again for questioning. He denied being the one that attacked Maria. CBC News reported that he voluntarily agreed to a polygraph. It was administered by the premier lie detector firm in the country, and it was determined that the priest was not telling the truth, and that he had been trying to control his breathing, and told the examiner, there won't be any more evidence that comes out, and what you have isn't enough to convict me. The truth of what he'd done must have been weighing heavily on the priest's conscience. The Tiley Morning Telegraph reported that Father Fight claimed that after submitting to 32 lie detector tests and a 14-hour investigation with the Texas Rangers, his nervous system was affected and he needed some rest and peace. The church quietly sent Father Fight to a church-run medical facility in St. Louis. Meanwhile, investigators were working around the clock and had interviewed over 500 people in their search for Irene's killer. The Monitor reported that the deputy sheriff and police chief stated that we all feel there is someone in the area who strongly suspects some person's actions during the period from Saturday Easter evening to Easter Sunday night and they haven't come through with this information to us. Nearly four months after Irene was murdered, police charged 27-year-old Father Fight with assault with the intent to commit rape for his attack against Maria. But Father Fight was nowhere to be found. Two weeks later, he returned from St. Louis and surrendered and claimed he was innocent. Father Fight's $10,000 bond was paid, and he was released pending trial. In September, the Catholic Church sent him back to the hospital in St. Louis. A year after Irene's murder, her family still had no answers. In September, Father Feet was brought back to Texas, for the attempted rape trial, but the jury was deadlocked and didn't convict him. Rather than go to trial again, the prosecution offered him a plea deal, and he pled no contest to the lesser charge of aggravated assault, and received a $500 fine with no jail time. Five months later, the church sent Father Fight to a monastery for monks in Dubuque, Iowa. Dale Tashney, a monk at the monastery, was advised by his superior that a young priest named John Fight had killed a woman 
and Dale was tasked to see if he was suitable to become a monk. Dale counseled Father Fight, and after a few months, he confided that on an Easter weekend, he heard a woman's confession in the rectory, then attacked and killed her. Dale felt it was his job to counsel the priest, not his job to go to police, so he kept silent. It turned out Father Fight wasn't monk material after all, and in 1963, the church sent him to college in Chicago. Then in 1964, he was sent to a Catholic facility in New Mexico. Five years had passed since their daughter was murdered, and the Garza family was still seeking answers, and so were investigators. Another three years went by, and Father Fight had risen to a position where he supervised almost 80 priests. Ten years had passed since Irene was murdered, and her family and police still searched for her killer. In 1972, 12 years after he murdered Irene, Father Fight left the priesthood. He got married and had a family of his own, and in 1979 moved to Phoenix, Arizona, where his older brother was a priest. For 20 years, he raised a family and became a grandfather while he worked at the Catholic food bank. It makes you wonder, did he think of Irene during those years? Did he wonder about the children, the family she never got to have? Naomi Sigler never forgot her cousin Irene. Her father was a deputy and had worked on her case. In a CBC News 48 Hours interview, she described how one day she was at her aunt's house when she walked up to a portrait of Irene and wondered, Irene, where did you go? Naomi wanted to find out what happened to her. For two decades, she located every document she could find about her murder. She interviewed people and shared what she found with the McAllen police. Then, in 2002, the Texas Rangers formed a new cold case unit, and the McAllen police chief, Victor Rodriguez, asked them to look at Irene's case. Texas Ranger Rudy Jaramillo led the investigation. They began by testing Irene's clothing for DNA, but her body had been in the water too long. Then, in a twist of fate, and I do love a twist, ex-monk Dale Tashney called Detective George Sadler at the San Antonio Police Department. He never forgot Father Fight's confession made 41 years earlier. He provided what he knew, but he didn't know all the details. He recalled the murder happened around Easter, and he thought it might have been in San Antonio, but Father Fight had never said where. The detective added the priest case to his list of cases and began searching cold cases in San Antonio, but didn't find a victim that matched. Then a Texas Ranger paid him a visit. Rudy walked in 
and instantly noticed the words priest case on his list and asked about it. Once the detective and the Texas Ranger compared notes, they realized they might be working on the same case. In 2002, Rudy tracked down Father O'Brien, and he recalled Father Fight's confession to him in 1960, and the details corroborated Dale's story. In 2003, Rudy asked Dale to call John to see if he would talk to him after all these years. It had been decades since the two men had spoken, but when John answered the phone, he instantly remembered him. Dale told him he needed to clear his conscience about the young woman's death, but John claimed he didn't remember such a discussion. The Hidalgo County District Attorney Rene Guerra didn't feel there was enough evidence for an indictment and refused to prosecute John. This infuriated Irene's family. They held a candlelight vigil outside the courthouse and the pressure worked. Renee brought the case to a grand jury in 2004, but in a strange decision, the grand jury didn't subpoena John, Dale, or Father O'Brien. They didn't talk to any of them. Instead, they reviewed their audio tapes of what they told investigators. The grand jury declined to indict John. The Garza family never gave up. Ten years later, the district attorney's term in office expired, and during the election campaign, his opponent, Ricardo Rodriguez, pledged to reopen Irene's murder case. Ricardo won, and John was finally charged with her murder. In December 2017, it took a jury six and a half hours to find him guilty. It had taken 57 years to get justice for Irene. The Garza family celebrated in the courtroom with hugs, smiles, and tears. The former priest's face showed no emotion, not even a twitch as he was led back to his jail cell. 85-year-old John was sentenced to life in prison and became an inmate at the Texas Department of Criminal Justice Prison in Huntsville. His lawyer appealed his conviction. Although Texas Ranger Rudy Jaramillo is now retired, he still keeps a photo of Irene in his office. John will be eligible for parole at the age of 95, but it turns out John won't be getting parole. He died in prison in February 2020. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Brett Ryan. He robbed banks to support his lifestyle. After prison, he was welcomed home. With weeks to their wedding, his lies were about to be exposed. The family that had stood behind him now stood in his way. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murder20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, 
we'd be eternally grateful for your support. By visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or Murder20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Fastlane Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.